This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. I'm your host, Andy. Uh, in a moment, we're about to get connected with Vivian, who's attending an energy conference. Uh, she's going to tell us all about our guests. So, are you there, Viv? Yes, I am, Andy. Hi, how are you going? Oh, I'm good. I'm in very corporate circumstances here. I've just stepped out of the um, Energy Summit, which is run by the Financial Review, and everybody from industries here and government, and I feel like a sardine in a tank shark. <laughs> I know, it's a bit intimidating. They don't mention climate change very much, and the gas mm. people seem very irritated by citizens who are getting moratoriums on coal seam gas, like in Victoria. We had Josh Frydenberg this morning who was hinting that he was moving away from any sort of clean energy target, and then we had Jay Weatherall from, you know, the Premier of South Australia, yeah. and he said the best thing the Commonwealth could do would be just get out of the way, and then I had lunch, and I was just standing there on my own, and one man got talking to me, and he told me that climate change was just all hysteria. Mm. Oh, gosh, yeah, I felt... Yeah, I'm happy. glad you were there keeping your mind. <laughs> well, I wasn't really. I just told him all my views, and he just said it was rubbish, and he said that renewable energy couldn't work without gas, and oh, gosh, really... I, and I, I, I have to, to say to that, really. <laughs> I have to screw up my courage to do some interviews with uh, some of them tomorrow. I think, but it's rather intimidating. But anyway, look, tonight's show cool. is—you uh, haven't got much time to fit it all in. I just want to tell you what tonight's show yep. is about: um, journalism. So the listeners, I think, might have felt like me that the Hurricane Harvey and then these floods in Bangladesh—they weren't really reported with any reference to climate change. No. So I've got this interview with George Monbiot who was talking um, about Hurricane Harvey and he's ex he explains why, you know, why journalists are sort of unable to really go there about the fossil fuels that are making these um, horrific weather events happen yeah. or intensified and he's really good. He, he's, he was talking on Democracy Now. And then I interviewed a, a woman, a professor of journalism from Cardiff called Karen Wilde Jorgensen, and she tells us about disaster reporting and also why journalists, well, I think I'm seeing this at the con uh, conference that I'm at, it's, uh, people get into bubbles, you know, they just can't think outside, I'm in this mm. air-conditioned place and I almost can't think my normal thoughts in here with all these people talking in the, uh, mm. on the denial sort of stage. Well, I guess so, it, it's all money-orientated, isn't it? Yeah. it it is, and 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 they're talking about very big money. These are people investing billions and trying, to, uh, and and that's an anxiety for them. You know, you meant to feel really sorry for them mm. that they've got such a big job. Anyway, look, let's go over to Kenya. I I had heard about um, the first interview will be in Kenya. I interviewed this guy. Um, I'd heard about the Lewa Conservancy and how they protect endangered rhinos. So I think the listeners might like to think of like David Attenborough. You know, these wild animals Thank going. You. Yeah, huge. They do these huge migrations every year, and we've seen it all in David Attenborough. Well, it's it's there in Kenya, near Mount Kenya, and they've got this one place called the Lewa Conservancy, and I, I'd heard about it because they protect, you know, endangered rhinos and elephants, but I was really delighted to talk to this uh, scientist called David Kamiti, or Kiniti, about it. Uh, I did it about a month ago. It was really cold in Melbourne, and I asked him, and he said, oh, it's really... <laughs> A lot of mm. drought and heat here. The last and week's been lovely, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's no, been no, a it's nice all, change. It's a really nice change. So when I thought about that interview, I thought, golly, I was freezing doing that interview mm. when I talked to him. But anyway, time's passed. But he told me about Kenya's uh, climate change action plan and yep. how they've got massive wildlife corridors and that they can sequester carbon, you know, if they don't uproot the trees there. Mm. And I think listeners will really enjoy it. So can we just listen to that one now? And then great. after that, the listeners will hear about uh, journalism. No worries. Sounds great. It was great speaking to you, Vivian. Yeah. Thanks uh, very much, Andy. Good luck at the conference. Oh, yes. Bye Thanks very much. And this, will, this is David Carnady. Enjoy. Tonight we're going to Kenya. We'll meet Dr. David Kimiti. 
He's the Head of Research and Monitoring at Lua Wildlife Conservancy. And the reason I want him to take us out among the elephants and rhinos is because of carbon. Lua is a UNESCO World Heritage Site and it manages a piece of land the size of Denmark with gaps in the fences for wildlife migration. They prevent poaching and offer sanctuary to endangered species. But what has all this to do with the climate disruptions that we're all facing? Well, hold on to your seats. We're off on a safari to find out. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. Uh, happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you. Now, look, it's freezing in Melbourne. Just tell us what it's like in Kenya and what does it look like where you are at the Nature Conservancy? Currently, we are in the middle of a prolonged dry period, so it's uh, very hot and very dry and dusty right now. Lots of uh, brown grass uh, around over the savannah, which actually somehow makes it a little bit prettier. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I know that your conservancy is near Mount Kenya, but it used to be a cattle ranch, yes. didn't it? How did it become a conservancy place that's given world, uh, un- UNESCO World Heritage privilege? So the the process has been an evolution. Um, it started off as a cattle ranch, as you as you quite correctly pointed out. But the owners of that cattle ranch always had um, a soft spot for the wildlife that was on the conservancy, um, especially um, the, the rhinos. And eventually, uh, several of the original owners, in, uh, with, together with some of their friends, decided mm-hmm. to set up a rhino sanctuary on Lewa. And over time, they discovered that the, the land that they'd set aside for the rhino sanctuary, as they got more and more rhinos, they needed to expand it. And as it expanded and expanded, eventually they just decided to shut down the cattle business and con- convert completely into a conservancy. So not just for rhinos, but for other endangered species as well. And being right next to Mount Kenya uh, na- uh, National Park and Forest, eventually it was decided that the, the best way for the wildlife to thrive on uh, Lewa and uh, um, uh, beyond mm-hmm. was to connect Lewa's pop- wildlife population to Mount Kenya's wildlife population and therefore linkages were created between Mount Kenya and Lewa Conservancy. And that expansion was what um, led to Lewa getting on the on the radar for the uh, UNESCO World Heritage Committees. And uh, there were several reasons why Lewa was selected, including its natural beauty and the fact that it had hosts endangered species. But most importantly was the connection of the Mount Kenya World Heritage Site through Lewa and to northern Kenya. So forming a corridor from Mount Kenya, which is a tropical rainforest, through to Samburu in the north, which is um, a grassland savanna. Oh, yes. Now, I've heard about this big wildlife migration, and listeners might think of those films by David Attenborough where we see millions of wildebeest and herds of elephants, you know, going up this great grassland and it's all connected. But I wonder how this wildlife corridor, Mm -hmm. I think it connects you even to Tanzania, that wildlife go on this big migration every year. How, How does that, how do you preserve that? Corridor more and more difficultly uh, b- because part of the re- part of the problem is that they not all these wildlife areas are currently connected. We have a lot of breakages, a lot of fragmentation in uh, wildlife landscapes that used to be connected but no longer are. Um, so, for example, the northern Kenyan conservation region is no longer uh, connected to the southern Kenyan conservation region. But efforts are being made within those regions to keep connecting them. Part of the problem being as Kenya is developing, more and more land is being convert- con- converted to either agriculture or urban centers. And therefore, the old linkages that used to exist with no management um, now have to be managed actively for them to be useful for wildlife to move through. Um, And so in northern Kenya, there's a big push to try and connect all these landscapes together to sort of recreate a little bit of what the original linkages might have looked like in the past. Yes, and so it's wonderful for tourists and and people educationally and I imagine for scientists too to study animals. But my interest is really climate change and carbon sequestration. And in Australia we have wildlife conservancies that lock off a lot of land, especially against feral animals. And, um, you know, they protect the animals and they keep, say, the cattle in a separate part and they protect the rivers. And they have had some very good results in terms of just keeping the landscape safe in a way rather than letting it become eroded and certainly letting the carbon off into the atmosphere through wildfires. So I wonder if you have a consciousness there also of preserving the vegetation and preserving 
you know, the carbon in the grasslands and the trees? Um, yeah, there's definitely an active uh, movement to, to conserve the habitat itself because with, without the habitat, none of these wildlife species that we support uh, or that we are trying to protect would survive. The, the challenge, again, being um, the different um, landscape uses across the, 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 the general ecosystem. Uh, some places have de- dedicated themselves primarily to cattle production. Others have dedicated themselves to conservation um, so have no sort of no livestock at all on their conservancies on their private ranches um, and then you also have pastoralism also on the landscape so all these conflicting uh, or I, I, it would appear conflicting uh, land use types have to work together in tandem and so Lewa in partnership with uh, especially in northern Kenya in partnership with uh, the Northern Rangeland Trust uh, which is another organization that's looking to, to, to connect these landscapes, um, is looking at how best to balance these land uses to make sure that we are maximizing or optimizing the productivity of vegetation on the landscape, reducing erosion while being in, in more of a, a conservation rather than a preservation model, yeah. uh, whereby the pastoralists are still using the landscape, wildlife is still using the landscape. Uh, fences are primarily protection as opposed to um, exclusion for um, the cattle or other livestock. Um, And so all these mixed uses have to work together to continue the cycle that existed but probably cannot be replicated. But for us, it's very important to try and create as pristine of a habitat as we can. And by doing that, the habitat is then also sequestrating carbon, even though it's not our primary goal per se, but it is a very important function for us. Yeah, well... I've read a bit on your website about it and I was interested that you interact a lot with the local community and so there are local farmers, more like subsistence farmers and I wonder how they manage when it's a drought which is another aspect of climate change that sort of intensifies these weathers. You said you're having a drought at the moment. Well, wild animals need to Mm -hmm. eat and I wonder if they don't conflict with the farmers. Do the elephants come crashing in on the farmers sometimes? Is that a problem? That is very true. Uh, One of the biggest indirect problems of climate change we are having is with these increased droughts and increased storms, we are having the farmers usually irrigate their crops using either groundwater or stored rainwater and when they irrigate their crops the elephants will see those places as emergency feeding areas, not just the elephants but also other smaller wildlife but elephants are the biggest problem because they do break fences or now have even learned to crawl under some kinds of fences that we've put up around with the communities and so we are in the process of learning how they are evading these fences, what kind of fences we can put up, how farmers can better protect their crops from the elephants. We are also currently working in partnership with the uh, Bees and Elephants Project, which has developed these uh, innovative bee fences, bee, beehive fences, oh, yeah. those elephants don't like bees. Yeah. Elephants don't like bees. So we've created these beehive fences that if the elephants touch one of the, any, any part of the fence, then all the hives are disturbed and uh, the bees will come out and ch- scare the elephants away. So we are hoping to trial that in the next couple of months to see if we can um, work with those farmers to be able to do that. And that is a quite a huge challenge. We can only help so much as the drought intensifies and gets longer. It becomes more and more critical for us to keep the elephants out. And it's a conversation that's still ongoing. Yeah, well, I've heard that the recent droughts have also caused inter-tribal conflict um, over grazing mm-hmm. land and water in the Mukogodo forest. I read that about on your website, and uh, I, I'm impressed that you do work with the community to sort of create peace and to manage the forest, because it's important that the forest stays standing, but there's conflict now over all these sorts of resources. Tell us how that happened. So so the, the big thing is that, first of all, we have an increasing population of um, around, uh, in the areas around Lewa, not just, it's not a problem that just Lewa or the northern Kenyan landscape is facing, it's most of Africa, actually. But in Kenya specifically, as the droughts intensify, as uh, population increases, what happens is that we have more and more people relying on a shrinking resource base and when that happens you're bound to have conflicts and this conflict while when 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 things get better this it's it's very easy to sort of deal with them and be able to sit people down and have you know peace meetings and and so on and so forth but the longer these conditions and the more frequently they happen people are not able to then bounce back and so they will start fighting for the same pieces of grazing so unfortunately as populations grow they also uh, the livestock also grows and the climate also uh, is also 
also changing at the same time. So it's a, it creates a sort of a perfect storm. Um, any of these issues in, independently uh, would would be a challenge in and of itself dealing with, but dealing with all of them at the same time is problematic. Lewa actually allocates about 40% of its revenues to dealing with uh, community livelihoods and trying to create livelihoods that are sustainable to the community, and so they are not, um, they are more resilient to changes in climate you know, conditions around us. Yes. And so by virtue of, the, of, like I said, the changing climate, the shrinking resource base, and the cost of development in that there's less and less open areas for uh, pastoralists, for example, to move into, they are all targeting the same emergency grazing and therefore that's very likely to lead to um, conflict. Yes. Well, look, one of the Kenyans who I admire very much is Wangari Matai, and I've been dedicated some programs to her because I, you know, we're, we're always about climate change, but Wangari Matai was about um, green belts and reforesting areas which brought back the water, which gave people's livelihood back to them, and it was such a sensible thing, and I think she, you know, planted millions of trees with uh, all the groups that she seeded. So I've, I see Kenya as a bit of a leader in that sort of consciousness you know that there is always Mm -hmm. conflict over land but you have to think how can we make the most of it how can we just conserve and extend the the green belts as she did Uh, would you say kenya is leading in africa Mm -hmm. on that sort of climate action you know regarding the land um i think that's that's a pretty accurate assessment um i don't know whether you've We've been in touch at all with uh, any of the Kenyan news. We recently also banned the use of plastic bags as, as just as an example of how... I did see that. And we actually have the harshest penalties in the world for, for pollution. And so it's it's sort of a general consciousness that, that is built into both the public and uh, sort of uh, governments. And we, we are really trying to be the leaders in that. We have a lot of partners that are helping that. Uh, Rwanda, Ethiopia are also helping in the movement uh, uh, in the region. And Kenya is also the the headquarters for the United Nations Environmental Program, so that also helps build our th- sort of thought leadership credentials across the world. And uh, before we can export it, obviously, we have to make sure that we are trying to perfect it here. Yes. Well, I I looked up on the Internet what cl- uh, Kenya's climate policy was, and you do have a, an action plan, and the things regarding the land that was recommended, I wondered if you can you see examples of this around you. Uh, they comment they wanted to increase agroforestry where livestock would be grazing among the crops and the trees, mm. conservation tillage, which reduces the use of digging, and no, not so much slash and yeah. burn, not so much burning. Is this hard to do in the communities around you? Mm-hmm. Are those three things hard to do? It's hard to do when conditions are, are harsh, but there's initiatives, there's extension services that are being provided. Now itself, actually, the community department has an agricultural uh, extension service, and part of the part of the challenge is to provide alternatives that are still economically feasible to the community, I think, is the major challenge. But there's a lot of research being done by the Kenya Agricultural uh, um, Research Organization, for example, um, so we have a lot of different institutions, including the World Agroforestry Center, which is headquartered in Nairobi, that provides a lot of support and training. And a lot of these uh, initiatives are being implemented across northern Kenya. For example, you talked about conservation tillage, which is definitely being implemented here in in pilot stages, though it's not really widespread as yet. And also not just in terms of reduced digging, but also reduced water use, efficient water use, selection of crops that are um, you know most suited for, for, for these conditions. And then also just how to to be more resilient with uh, the changing changes in, in weather patterns, the changing weather patterns, how to consult, how to trap water during the very heavy storms and be able to use them during the the, the prolonged dry periods. And so there's all these initiatives that are working. The biggest challenge, like I said, is making sure they're economically feasible to the communities. That way, the adoption rates are higher. That's usually the key, is making sure that they work. So a lot of research is very important in this respect. In your work monitoring, uh, you must monitor the health of the animals quite a lot, these uh, migrating animals, wildlife. Do you see, tell us some of the results that you've noticed, and also, is it better on a conservancy property or in a national park? Ah, that's, a, that's a loaded question. <laughs> yes. uh, but uh, we, we we do, we do, we do. <laughs> I think as long as the, there's, there's, a, there's an effort to protect the animals, there's always going to be changes. So both national parks uh, designated conservancies are good for wildlife. We do something called the body condition scores for most of our wildlife. 
um, where we look at the changes in their conditions across the, the months and the years. And you can compare resident animals, animals that are living on the cons- on private conservancies, and re- animals that are coming from more open areas that are unprotected and un- unregulated. And there's always the animals that are on uh, uh, that are on protected areas or in conserved areas are always always do better than animals coming from unprotected areas. Primarily because again, going back down to the habitat, there's a concerted effort in conservation areas and national parks to manage the habitat. Therefore, the wildlife does better. So, and also not only in terms of the condition, in terms of their the, how they look, but also how they behave. We have uh, different reactions from animals that are in private areas and conserved areas to animals that are in between. And the elephants especially do this thing we call streaking, which is they know when they are, they are in an area that is not well protected or well conserved and they won't spend a lot of time there. They'll basically dash between these sanctuaries, as it were. And uh, the, therefore, the, the animals that are in those sanctuaries uh, do better than the animals that are in the in the interspaces. But because about 75% of Kenya's wildlife is outside protected areas, there is now an increasing push to make sure that those areas are brought into the fold as well. I'd mentioned to you before that we also started off as a rhino uh, sanctuary, so we do have both uh, black rhino and white rhino, um, uh, and uh, we we actually have one of the biggest populations of uh, uh, black rhino uh, left in the world right now. So this landscape has quite a huge diversity of species, uh, both large mega herbivores to tiny creatures like uh, mongooses uh, running around. So we have a huge diversity of wildlife here. We we have more than 3,000 kids that come to Lewa every year visiting through the conservation education program. And it's a very interactive program. It's, it's not really just sort of driving around and seeing the wildlife, but also interacting with some of the conservation educators we have here that sort of teach them th- uh, about ecosystem cycling, about water, about wildlife and the importance and how different skeletons of different animals look like and um, their histories. It ignites this passion for conservation uh, in these children that will, not just in the future, but even even now be conservation leaders in their own right. Con- uh, campaigning or uh, lobbying for the conservation of wildlife is something that is ignited by them seeing the wildlife up close. It is no longer something that's abstract to them, but something that they've seen with, they've interacted with, they've heard the sounds the elephants make, they heard hyenas laughing and you know whooping at night so it it creates this sort of it removes the disconnect between reading things in their books and hearing about them or seeing them on tv and actually experiencing them in real life Mm. so it's it's just creates a passion in them that they might not otherwise have gotten if they hadn't experienced it firsthand i've always thought of safari tourism as being a rather elitist Thing and just rich people coming and looking and taking photos. Nothing really necessarily to do with the dangerous situation that wildlife, nature and the whole world now, the whole ecosystem is really in. I mean, climate change is my main theme and I see it pressuring on every system, you know, marine systems, land systems and every part of our world is threatened by climate change and I, I wonder I think it's because we don't do enough about it to stop it because we're not conscious we just see things in separate little boxes do you find that the people who come maybe the adults the tourists or some of the international students who come or the scientists who come that they change their thinking about the world by seeing this vast land seeing these migrations of animals seeing you know nature in its full strength mm-hmm. Um, that is indeed you, you've encapsulated that brilliantly, and uh, part of the part of the beauty of Lewa is that our model of tourism is is very much eco, eco, ecological ecological based tourism, conservation tourism, where we don't just present um, to the to to our visitors a sort of um, you know package where they just come see the wildlife and then leave. We actually invest time in exposing them to the programs that we run, the research programs that we run, uh, the importance of the, of, you know, the conservation programs that we're implementing, the research that we're doing, because uh, ideally it's not just, we're not just trying to change their minds so that Lewa can be uh, bigger and better, but also that they can also be able to change. They can be in their own right conservation lobbyists when they go back. And so there's a very tightly coupled relationship between tourism and conservation here. And hopefully most people that would come and visit would go away with the same um, sort of uh, experience and the same opinion that we have of it. Yes, I certainly heard about your place 
from a friend of ours called Andrew, and he visits every year, I think, and he always is telling me about the poaching and the way you're counteracting that and the wonderful success rate with your black rhinos, you know, birth, number of births of black rhinos and none dying, I think, one year. And, you know, really quite a lot of achievements just in um, keeping nearly extinct animals sort of on their feet and maybe giving them a future. And I think when I, I mostly heard that aspect from him, but then I've looked up the website, and if people are listening to this program, it's Lewa, L-E-W-A, um, Wildlife Conservancy in Kenya. And you might like to just look up people who would like to donate. They will see what they're donating to. Is there anything else that I have missed that you would like to say about the work you're doing? Maybe just sort of in general, just talk about a little bit about how the, the connectivity of the landscape. We're talking about how the, the landscape is connected here through Mount Kenya, through Lewa, Samburu up north. We are also working in partnership with a lot of organizations to strengthen our community conservancies beyond Lewa. The Northern Rangeland Trust is doing some work, uh, some very good work in trying to build the capacity of a lot of these community, la- community-owned lands to conserve wildlife because if Lewa could be very good at protecting wildlife in our, in our own corner of the of the country and uh, of Africa but without that sort of broader uh, landscape ecosystem protection some of these animals need really need these safe havens to go through um, you know just for from genetic perspectives from uh, reducing human wildlife conflict perspectives and so I just like to say for us it's a bigger thing it's a bigger con- conversation than just lower and we really want your listeners to come and visit us and experience it for themselves and hopefully join us in this uh, push and uh, hopefully we, we can conserve these habitats and these animals for prosperity. Thank you very much. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. So that was Dr. David Kamiti. He's the Head of Research and Monitoring at Lewa Wildlife Conservancy in Kenya. Thank you, David. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Welcome back. Now we are going to hear about how the media is not connecting the dots between fossil fuels and events like Hurricane Harvey. It was the third once-in-100-year storm, and yet journalists dodge mentioning the carbon emissions that fueled it. First we'll hear from George Monbiot from Democracy Now!, and then Viv talks to Professor of Journalism at Cardiff University, Karen Wall-Jogginson. While Houston continues to deal with the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, we look at the media silence on the human contribution to it. Our next guest writes that despite 2016 being the hottest year on record, with several climate-related disasters in the U.S. alone, the combined coverage during the evening and Sunday news programs on the main television networks amounted to a total of 50 minutes in all of last year. British journalist and author George Monbiot writes, quote, Our greatest predicament, the issue that will define our lives, has been blotted from the public's mind. The silence has been even more resounding on climate-related disasters in areas of the world where populations are more vulnerable, most recently on the devastating floods across the globe from Niger to South Asia. Following days of torrential rain, at least seven people are dead and as many as 40 feared trapped after a building collapsed in Mumbai, India's financial capital. The storm reached Pakistan Thursday, where a state of emergency has been declared in Karachi, the country's largest city, as heavy rains inundated several low-lying areas. Over the past month, more than 1,200 people have died in flooding in Bangladesh, Nepal, and India. This year's monsoon season has brought torrential downpours that have submerged wide swaths of South Asia, destroying tens of thousands of homes, schools, and hospitals, affecting up to 40 million people. Meanwhile, in Niger, West Africa, Africa, thousands of people have been ordered to leave their homes in the capital after several days of heavy downpours. More than 40 people have died since the rainy season began in June. We go now to Oxford in Britain to speak to George Mambio. He's a columnist with The Guardian. His book, Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis, is out this week. His latest article for The Guardian is headlined, Why are the crucial questions about Hurricane Harvey not being asked? George Mambio, welcome back. Back to Democracy Now! We'll answer your question. (laughs) Well, because to ask those questions is to challenge everything. 
It's to challenge not just Donald Trump, not just current environmental policy, it's to challenge the entire political and economic system. And it is to recognize that the system which we tell ourselves is the best system you could possibly have of neoliberal capitalism, which will deliver the optimum outcomes in the best of all possible worlds, actually is destined to push us towards catastrophe. And unless we replace that system with a better one, with something really quite different, then we, it, it will destroy us. Instead of making us more prosperous, more comfortable, it will rip apart everything that makes our lives worth living and result in the deaths of very large numbers of people. Well, quite apart from the fact, uh, George, that uh, the issue of climate change uh, uh, is not mentioned in the media, as you write in your article, um, you also think that the term climate change is misleading and the term that should be used is climate breakdown. Uh, could you explain why that is? Mm. Well, climate change is a curiously bland term to describe our greatest crisis, our, our huge human predicament that will inevitably lead to catastrophe if we don't take drastic action to prevent it. Um, it's a bit like calling a foreign invasion unexpected guests. Uh, it's, it's that crazily bland for something which is uh, going to have such an enormous impact on our lives and as we've just been hearing has already had such an enormous impact on many people's lives around the world. And unless you use the right language to describe what you're talking about, you mislead people as to what the likely implications of that are. And by talking about climate change, as if it, you know, it could be a good thing, could be a bad thing, who knows, it might be a neutral thing, you know, we like a bit of climate change, don't we? We like it when the winter gives way to summer. We suggest that this huge catastrophe might not be a catastrophe at all. I don't think climate breakdown is a perfect term. I can't quite put my finger on the right term, but I think it comes a lot closer to what we need to be saying than climate change does. What do you say to those who say you cannot link this one hurricane or storm to climate change or climate chaos, climate breakdown, as you describe mm. it? I would say you cannot not link it. Um, we have so far one degree centigrade of global warming, and that now affects every single weather event on Earth. Just like the four degrees centigrade of global warming that followed the Ice Age, it was four degrees between the last Ice Age and the 19th century, affects every single weather event on Earth, and we wouldn't have warm summers without that four degree of warming. With that extra one degree of warming, that uh, creates further implications for every single weather event on Earth. And for hurricanes, the link is crystal clear. There are three ways in which the impact of hurricanes is affected by that one degree of warming. First of all, sea levels are higher. So coastal cities like Houston, like Port Arthur, get, uh, are more likely to be hit by storm surges as a result of those higher sea levels, as we were hearing from your wonderful guest Hilton Kelly in the last segment. Number two, the sea is warmer, the temperature of the sea is higher, and that can enhance the intensity of the storm, because it puts more energy into the storm. The storm is picking up energy from those warmer waters. And number three, the air itself is warmer, and warmer air holds more moisture than cooler air. And that means that you can have much more intense rainfall events. So it, what we see here is that it's impossible for the hurricane not to have been affected by climate breakdown. Now, uh, of course, what we can't say is there would have been no hurricane if it weren't for climate breakdown. If it weren't for the human contribution, for the fossil fuels we've been burning, there wouldn't have been a hurricane. Of course there were hurricanes in the past. What we can say is that this hurricane, whether or not it was caused by the human contribution, was affected by the human contribution. That is unequivocal. Well, nevertheless, George, um, you've been accused, as uh, no doubt have others, of politicizing uh, Hurricane Harvey and events like mm -hmm. it, extreme weather events like it, uh, by linking it uh, to climate change. Yes, and now, in fact, the Environmental Protection Agency um, itself has accused climate scientists in the U.S. 
of politicizing it by mentioning climate change or climate breakdown. It's an extraordinary thing. It's clear to me that by not mentioning it, you are politicizing this issue. The linkage is so clear, it is so obvious, that when you don't talk about it, you are taking a decision, you are taking a position, and the position is, we're not going to talk about climate change, we're not going to talk about climate breakdown. That is a political decision, and it's a highly charged political decision, which reflects powerful interests, it reflects the kind of interests we've just been hearing about, the oil refineries and the oil rigs, which themselves have been hit by Hurricane Harvey and its aftermath. An extraordinary irony, something which pulls up into stark relief the issue that we're dealing with, but just is not being discussed at all. And those people, the people who run those companies, they are responsible for shutting down all discussion of climate breakdown so that we don't go there, we don't talk about, uh, talk about it. And journalists and editors, with the glowing exception of yourselves, they have a powerful instinct not to go there. It's not that they wake up in the morning and say, don't talk about climate change, I mustn't talk about climate change, whatever I do, don't mention climate change. They don't need to say that. It, it's already in their guts, they have a visceral sense that if you go there, then you open up everything. You open Pandora's box and you open up a discussion of whether capitalism is working. You open up a discussion of whether the political system is working. You open up a discussion of what the world's most powerful actors, including the fossil fuel companies, are doing to the rest of the world's people. And to go there, you put everything at risk. You put your career at risk, you put your peace of mind at risk, you put the good opinion of your colleagues at risk. To challenge everything is to become an outcast. We're talking to George Mambio, the British journalist and author. <clears throat> President Trump just went to Texas and he's going back. When he landed, um, he didn't address the victims at all. He didn't talk about the victims, but he did say about the people around him, what a crowd, what a turnout. Now, President Trump is a proud climate, cha climate change denier, as is the governor of Texas, Governor Abbott. Um, you point out <clears throat> that Trump denying human-driven global warming um, is interesting given that he built a wall around his golf resort in Ireland to protect it from the rising seas. Talk more about this. He's trying. He hasn't yet succeeded, but he's applying for permission. His company is trying to build a seawall around his golf resort because it knows that the seas are rising and his golf resort is now at risk. And similarly, in the Gulf of Mexico, the oil companies keep raising the height of their oil platforms. In the 1960s, they were uh, 40 feet above sea level. Then in the 1990s, they were 70 feet. Today, they are 91 feet above sea level. And they have raised those platforms because they know the sea level is rising and storms are intensifying and they have done so to get the oil platforms out of the way of those impacts caused by climate breakdown caused by the oil companies themselves. So though those same oil companies, particularly ExxonMobil, have poured millions of dollars into paying professional liars to deny climate change across the media and across social media, they themselves know that it's happening and they're taking precautions to protect themselves against it. Well, uh, uh, George, I'd like to uh, turn to uh, another issue that you raise uh, in, in the piece. Uh, you, you talk specifically about the fact that the U.S. media have failed to cover uh, climate breakdown-related uh, disasters in the U.S. itself, but there's even greater silence uh, on climate uh, disasters in the rest of the world. I mean, we've just heard in India, Nepal, and Bangladesh, over 1,200 people have died. Uh, there are floods in Niger, uh, now in Karachi, a state of emergency has been declared. So can you talk uh, about that, the, the media silence mm -hmm. on that, and what's actually happening in these places where people are so much more vulnerable than here? It's an extraordinary thing to contemplate, isn't it, that the part of the world worst hit by current flooding is not actually Texas disastrous, catastrophic as it is in Texas, it is now even worse, particularly in India and Bangladesh and Nepal, um, where we're seeing huge, horrendous levels of flooding. 
40 million people affected by it, 1,200 people dead. Um, basically, the complete shutdown of the economy, of public life, of private life across a great swathe of those countries. And yet, there's almost media silence throughout the rich world. Um, this week in, in the UK, we've been hearing a lot about Bangladesh. Bangladesh has been in the headlines for the last two days, and there's been loads of commentary written about it. Why is that? Because Bangladesh won the cricket against Australia. I'm quite serious. This is a country in which 6.9 million people are now displaced by flooding, in which a third of the country is underwater, in which hundreds have died. We don't yet know how many because um, it'll be a long time before that count is ever made, if it is made at all. Loads of children can no longer go to school. It's a total disruption, devastation of that country. And finally, it features in the news because of the cricket. And again, it is this politically driven silence. Because if we were to consider what is going on in the rest of the world, and if we were to consider our contribution to what is going on in the rest of the world, and there's this terrible irony about climate change that the main perpetrators of it, with the exception of those refineries and rigs in the Gulf, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico and in Texas, generally the main perpetrators are those who are hit least and last, whereas people who have made very little contribution to climate breakdown are hit first and worst, like the people of Bangladesh, who have a tiny carbon footprint. Were we to really bring this to the front of our consciousness, as we should, it would necessitate a major change in the way we run our societies, a major change in the way we run our economies, and a major change in the way we live. So that is why we do not talk about it. Or if we talk about it, we do so tangentially, or we relate it as a natural disaster, another act of God, a terrible thing which has happened to those people. Poor people send them some money, we feel so sorry for them, but we wash our hands of it. There's nothing we can do. George Monbiot, uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed happens, to say we just have a minute but uh, can you give us a hint of what that change would look like? Right. We need a radical change uh, driven by the need to prevent this catastrophe to both politics and economics. And, the, and uh, an economic system which depends on perpetual growth on a finite planet is destined to deliver disaster. We need a new economy built around the commons, built around community ownership of local resources, inalienable ownership of those resources which are not expected to deliver more and more and more money but it is expected to deliver continued and steady prosperity to the people of those communities and the people of this planet. The system we have at the moment, which is about accumulation, the accumulation of capital, um, the continuation of growth in, in a planet which does not itself grow, that system is destined to push us over the cliff. George Mambio, we want to thank you so much for being with us. British journalist, author, columnist with The Guardian. His book, Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis, will be out this week. His latest piece for The Guardian will link to why are the crucial questions about Hurricane Harvey not being asked. And we'll have you back on to talk more fully about your ideas and your latest book, George. Thanks so much for joining us from Oxford, England. Tonight we're continuing with the themes raised by George Monbiot. We have with us an overseas professor called Karin Val-Jorgensen. She's a professor in the School of Journalism. Uh, Karin, can you help me? (laughs) It's the School of Journalism, Media and Cultural Studies at Cardiff University. I've invited you to share your knowledge of journalism with us because this is a community radio station And our credo is to be a voice for the voiceless, which was a phrase you used on the radio this morning. So that's what attracted me to what you had to say. Well, that's right. And I mean, for me, it's something that I often hear journalists reflecting on, that what brought them into the profession was this idea that through their work, they could give voice to the voiceless. And I think that's very much something that we we do occasionally see in disaster coverage, where actually uh, the victims on the ground are given a chance to tell their stories and also perhaps to hold those who are more powerful accountable for their actions. And so I think we can sometimes see some of these kinds of elements in disaster coverage, which um, in a sense highlights how 
journalism actually has a real opportunity to bring about political change and to hold those in power accountable. But I don't, uh, I didn't even hear in the Texas floods that where the, even the oil refineries were creating toxic disasters on top of the flood disaster and poor people were being put out of their homes. Uh, I didn't hear them say, you know, we blame those fossil fuel companies. They were, I mean, I don't expect people in an extreme situation to actually think that even, but they don't give room for that opinion, for the the connecting of the dots, because this is a climate action program, and I think we're one of the only radio stations in Australia that focuses relentlessly on climate change and climate action. The mind just drifts off that subject all the time, and I don't think the victims and their allies and their advocates are given any kind of platform any time near the disaster. It's months later or years later when everyone's forgotten that disaster, and we've gone on to another one that they give voice to the causal connections between, uh, for example, in climate change, the fueling of the hurricanes, for example, by extra CO2 in the atmosphere. In the coverage of Hurricane Harvey, we have seen discussion of uh, climate change, and I think it follows a, a broader increased awareness of this sort of blurry line between uh, natural and man-made disasters. Yes, well, that's natural disaster. The person who was talking to you this morning kept repeating that phrase, natural disaster, natural disaster, and I kept thinking this is a man man intensified disaster it might be the the run of the mill natural disaster but it's far in, more intensified isn't it um so a lot of times the significant loss of life and property in, in disasters is actually caused by um irresponsible development or also by things like poverty and poor construction standards so there are all these kinds of structural issues that are man made which contribute to exacerbating the effects of of so-called natural disasters. But then on top of that, of course, we also have the effects of climate change, which um, have meant that now we have 500-year storms every few few years. And and again, I think that you're right that that's not being sufficiently recognized or problematized, but I do think that there is a kind of growing awareness of that, both in terms of public awareness and also in terms of how journalists actually cover unfolding disasters. Yeah, well, look, I thought journalists had an absolutely wonderful opportunity there. It was as if uh, the cyclone was pointing a finger. You know, it it, it rolled over and flooded some of the oil refineries in Texas and oil rigs had to shut down. It was as if Harvey was sending a message to some of those big companies that are responsible for the greenhouse gases that we've now got in our, locked into our atmosphere. And I can see why the elites would not want to receive that message. They would not want to uh, stop making a profit in the short term. But I can't see how the public is served by journalists who are sort of complicit in that. And the public needs to be better informed in order to protest and to rise up against that. You know, we keep talking about mobilising people against climate events that are in the future for us, especially in those affected areas like Bangladesh and, uh, as I see, coastal areas. But uh, people can't be mobilised unless they're well informed. Do you think journalists are a little bit complicit or quite a lot complicit in framing it wrongly? There is evidence to suggest uh, in research that looks at public perceptions of, of climate change that actually people are more aware, more worried about climate change at the times of these big disasters because it really brings it to the forefront. So in that sense, I think that the media actually do a decent job of informing the public about, about what's going on here. I think they report on what's happening, but not the underlining meaning. And I'm thinking of the denial that's been funded by, for example, Exxon. They've admitted to it for years. They've delayed action on our part, on the public's part, because they can go on making profits. And they've funded disinformation and uh, think tanks, which, you know, just feed climate denial. And uh, newspaper, or mainly television, but a lot of newspapers also feel obliged to give space to deniers. You know, we have the framing of we'll have a scientist speaking on one hand and on the other hand as if it's an equal other hand, you'll have a denier. Now, I've, I've been in this uh, radio uh, show for six years and I've never interviewed a denier because like a Holocaust denier, I wouldn't interview them either. So I don't want to give myself the stress of talking to people who are, who have a sort of strategic and quite deliberate 
approach to, um, you know, infiltrating, I think, the public mind. Yeah, I mean, I think that, and this is, this is a big issue that journalism scholars have picked up on for years, that sometimes um, this sort of journalistic practice of wanting to provide a balanced story actually works against scientific fact. And, of course, when you've got such a strong scientific consensus, it's not actually really a debate. And, and so that, that's where the problem lies. This is an area where there is a clear understanding that, that that these are poor editorial choices. Yeah. I think there's no doubt about that at all. Oh, I'm glad you say that. I mean, you're a distinguished professor, and I'm, I mean, I brought up the idea of climate denial because I don't think the media take climate change seriously. We're talking about 20 years of these sorts of debates where they framed it very conveniently to be, as Naomi Oreskes said, uh, merchants of doubt. They've allowed a seed of doubt and they've allowed, and they wouldn't do it over Holocaust denial, for example. They would stomp on it or not, not, not let it go uh, on as long as they have with climate. And as the climate um, denial industry has paid for, we've had years of delay whereby action, sufficient action hasn't been taken. It's so urgent. And now we're seeing it played out in the lives of these people in Bangladesh, one third of Bangladesh underwater. You know, I'm not slating at home exactly and, and uniquely to them, but it's a, a major contributor. And I, I actually blame the journalists who've allowed that framing so casually to go on. Well, I, th I think that we also have to think here about uh, political and, like you said, corporate forces that seek to influence media coverage. And in that respect, obviously, it's not particularly helpful to have a climate change denier in the White House um, who makes a series of political appointments um, of, of other people who agree with, with his beliefs so that you get people who have a lot of power um, who actually hold these opinions which are at odds with scientific consensus. Mm. This, is, uh, this is just the end game. I think Trump is the, the last gasp of all of this, but I interviewed a French scientist who was one of these glaciologists in Antarctica. They discovered the ice cores, you know, those long ice cores where they can trace the sort of world history on the ice core, and they found when the carbon started to augment. And he said he was just sick. He was an older man, and he said, I just got so sick of so many French TV chat shows where I had to be the glaciologist versus the person who just popped up as a denier. And, he, you know, he was a very eminent scientist. Um, uh, I just couldn't. It was terrible. And he was talking about 20 years ago. So this is really going on. Let, let's come back to Mombio because Mombio he's getting stronger now about this. He says... Journalists cannot challenge the capitalist system. That's the reason, he says. He says that that system is robbing the future to fuel the present. What do you think about that? Is that... I mean, I wouldn't be quite as pessimistic necessarily as he is, and nor would I point the finger of blame entirely at journalism, because I think that you do see quite a lot of coverage, even if it's not necessarily always as strong or as clearly reflective of the scientific consensus as, as we would like. But I think that he does point to this issue, um, which is that journalism tends to focus on whatever is happening right now, um, often to the detriment of thinking about, you know, what's actually going to happen in the future, what are the bigger stories. But, in fact, organizations like the one that he works for, The Guardian, um, do provide that kind of coverage, and as do other well-resourced media organizations. So I think, for me, one of the solutions here is to continue to support um, the remaining news organizations that actually have the resources to report on these big stories in a, in a responsible manner. And I do believe that these kinds of organizations still exist, um, and I hope they will continue to exist. Yeah. I think it's more than reporting on the events. I think it's more, as he's saying, comment, um, understanding and explaining the structure of capitalism. It's not just the structure of the media. And I remember that book by Noam Chomsky called Manufacturing Consent, whereby everyone who goes through a university, including journalism students, are sort of signed up to a sort of tacit consent to the system that we're in. And now, with climate change really challenging everything, we need to rethink that and journalists maybe need to be educated into those bigger systemic forces behind each unique event. In your university, I wonder, do you think that journalists are being taught the right thing? 
your book, you're writing a book now called Emotion, Media and Politics, and you're, you know, specialised in this sort of disaster journalism. I wonder if they're learning the right thing for the future that they will face, younger than me. They'll be going into a climate disaster very frequently, and um, you think they need to report on it differently? Well, traditionally the way that... uh journalism has been taught has tended to focus on actually imparting the kinds of skills that you need to report on the story and then obviously journalists will often learn on the job and they'll often um, learn things that we could have never taught them at university and that also includes the kinds, kinds of facts on the ground in terms of understanding climate change. So in, in some ways, I, I think that that's quite a good approach that journalists need to know or need to learn the big stories on the basis of, of their own experience and what they see when they go out there and report the stories. Um, I think it's, it's difficult to actually teach you or te- teach that in, in, the new, in the context of, of the university classroom. Well, they're going to also be facing a new sort of media universe with a lot more perhaps informal jobs, not really so much full-time employed as at, an, at a newspaper or a television station. And you've written that you think, uh, I think this is what you think is the moral idea behind journalism, that journalists are the servants of the public. They're informing us what has happened first and then educating us about the significance of it, which is that's where I think the gap is. And giving the third part is giving citizens a platform, which is this voice for the voiceless, giving people a chance to interact. How could they do more than, in the case of disasters, how could they do more than just evoke a feeling of compassion and urge us to send emergency supplies. Do you think they should be also asking us to lower our carbon footprint and urge our governments to lower the carbon footprint? I think, first of all, I just want to pick up on on this point that you were making uh, initially, which was around the increasing precarity of journalistic jobs, and and I think that's absolutely right, and it's something that the whole industry, including us as journalism educators, really have to come to terms with, which is the fact that news organizations don't have the same resources that they once did, and also um, that... um, journalists will tend to move from one job to the next and maybe have more of a portfolio career. And what that means is that obviously, in a sense, the scope for the kind of journalism that that you describe might be more limited in the future than than they have been uh, before. But but having said that, I think that um, most journalists would recognize the importance of actually talking about climate change and actually covering that as part of their job in terms of informing the public. So I think that it is something that is sort of quite widely agreed upon by journalists. Um, And then it's a question of how do you actually make such coverage possible within the structures of journalism. Okay, well, thank you very much, Karen. Have I left out anything about what Monbiot said? I think he was making a really profound comment that the real politicisation of these current disasters is in the silence about you know, joining the dots. That silence is politicising the disaster. And journalists are told, oh, it's not nice to, you know, politicise an emergency when people are dying and losing everything. But he says the real politicisation is in the silence of connecting it. I agree with him that it's difficult to address these bigger ideological questions, but actually that each and every disaster always ends up being covered in a way that is profoundly political. And so I have a slightly more optimistic reading um, than, than Monbiot does, but I, th- I would still agree with him about the importance of actually informing the public about what is going on with climate change. We've been speaking to Professor Karen Wal jorgensen from the Cardiff University uh, School of Journalism. Thank you very much, Karen. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. Thanks to Vivian Langford for her interviews and David Committee in Kenya and to Andrew Muller and Winjiku Knufia, who helped make it happen. Thanks to Karen Wall-Jorgensen from Cardiff University and George Monbeau from Democracy Now! The team today is Viv, Roger, Jody, and my name is Andy. We'd like to thank another member of our team, Teddy, who has been doing the graphics to advertise our radio show for three years. It is a pity for us to say goodbye, but thanks, Teddy. You have done a wonderful job. Thanks for listening, and tune in next Monday at 5 p.m. to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. 
Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.